Hey everybody, what's going on? What's happening? What's the news? How are you feeling? Are you feeling okay? It's going to be okay, I think. It's Rich Roll here, uh, back on the podcast, your host of the podcast, where I sit down with the outliers, the paradigm breakers, the big forward thinkers across all categories of excellence and positive culture change to mine the tools, the insights, and the principles that can help all of us unlock and unleash our best most authentic selves. So today uh, we're back with another episode of Ask Me Anything with the lovely and beautiful Julie Pyatt. How are you? Hi, Rich. How's Doing good. Thanks for having me. You ready to it's answer good. Uh, some listener questions? I'm ready to just cut myself open and reveal all everything inside. Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to be doing that today. <laughs> I'm a little nervous actually about what's to come. You are. Yeah, it's going to be we're okay. Gonna be, honey. We're going to be going deep and we're going to be divulging on a new level. That's right. So I have some trepidation about it, but I think that's good. It's going to be all right. I think that's an indication that, uh, that this is going to be, uh, an interesting episode, I think. But before we get into it, we're brought to you today by on. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton, birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years, 
And I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, uh, what's been going on lately? I've been banging out podcast interviews like crazy. You're on fire. Quite a backlog, uh, which is kind of exciting. Uh, Just did a very interesting podcast with uh, this guy called Aaron Pearsall a couple days ago, who, uh, if you don't follow the sport of swimming, if you do, everybody knows who Aaron Pearsall is. He's a three-time Olympian. Only three Um, times. He's won a whole slew of like medals at the Olympics over three different Olympiads. Uh, and he absolutely dominated the backstroke events during his career. Uh, and he still holds the world record in the 100 back and in the 200 back. Those are world records that he set in 2009. And they still stand like six years later, which is crazy. That's incredible. So we had an amazing conversation. So there's that to look forward to coming up. I don't know when I'm going to post that. But it was really cool to connect with him. He's a pretty thoughtful, interesting guy, uh, different from most athletes that, uh, that you'll meet a very um, contemplative soul surfer type of individual. I definitely bonded with him. So yeah, I'm looking cool. forward to that. Right. So should we get to some questions? I guess so. We're going to launch right into it. We're going to get right in. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Are you ready? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> Do you want me to read the question? <laughs> no. So okay. the first question, and this perhaps might be the only question, depending on how much time we spend on this, but this is from Mike. Uh, I'm just going to use his first name, Mike. Uh, how the hell do you forgive and forget the decisions you made in your past? Uh, backstory, super condensed. 
I met a lady who was married. I was single. It was a powerful meeting and love at first sight. During our relationship, we were discovered by our employer in a way. I chose not to disclose her name, and it caused me my career. I waited for her to be with me, as she said, but it never happened, and I moved on. I can't get over losing the best career I ever had. I think of her all the time. I can't get the resentment, failure, and stupidity off my mind. It's been almost 10 years, and I still have huge regrets and disappointment. I've tried to forget how can one bury this. So that's a pretty intense question. Wow, that's very and, intense uh, there's experience. A, there's a lot packed into this. But essentially, the theme is shame, right? How do you deal with shame? How do you overcome shame? And what revolves around shame? The fear, the self-defeatism, uh, the negative self-esteem, the depression. There's a lot that gets packed into that, right? Um, and I think, you know, what's interesting is how he ended it with how can one bury this? And so the first thing I would say is that when it comes to shame, the most important thing is to not bury it, mm -hmm. right? Shame loves to be alone. It loves isolation. That's where it can fester and grow and really uh, gain a foothold in your consciousness. So the more you bury it, I think the more that it, uh, it becomes a problem for you. And I think the most powerful thing to do um, with overcoming shame and working through it is to not bury it, is to bring it out, is to talk about it with other people, to, uh, you know, release it and process it um, with other human beings and to get to a place where you can own it and be comfortable with it. And I think when you can do that, then the resentment starts to dissipate and all those feelings start to lose their strength. Yeah, that's beautifully what put. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's that's a very it's a very vast um, experience that he shared. So I'm just sort of trying to process it on many different levels. But I think that um, yeah, it's in the it's in the owning it and taking responsibility and sort of releasing the the victim energy from the experience that one can reclaim their connection to something deeper than really actions. You know, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody, um, makes decision or does things that they regret. Um, that's just the characteristic of a human life, but to, um, sweep it under the rug or act as if it didn't happen or keep it as a secret, like you said, causes it to then be amplified. And it's a, a seed that can, you know, fester and grow and, you know, turn into something much bigger later on down the line than, than needed to be. Um, so I think the first step is also is just, you know, claiming the responsibility of it and accepting it, stepping up and holding it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shame, uh, shame hates company. Shame loves, loves, uh, loves to be alone, you mm -hmm. know, residing privately in your consciousness where you can feed it. And it, and it's almost like that beast, like that evil, dark beast that, that wants you to keep it to yourself. And that lie that you tell yourself that if you do that, that eventually it'll go away but it doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. It's the actually the opposite effect. And, and I have ahead. something to add to that. Well, and the thing is, is it's like for the thing is, is that, you know, consciousness, consciousness knows, or the universe knows, or you at a higher level knows, however you relate to a greater force beyond yourself. So you're not really keeping anything secret. You know, you, you the personality may think that it's hiding something, but from the universal play and the universal law, you know, every, 
every action has a reaction. Every act is answered at some point. It might not be in this lifetime. It might be in a future lifetime, but it, every action has a reaction. So you're not really, it's an illusion to think that you're hiding it. Like you can't hide from yourself and you are this vast consciousness. Mm -hmm. But as, as a human, we play that trick where it's like, if we, we, it's very like, intoxicating and alluring to say like if i just pretend it didn't happen like just bury it and move on and time will you know in time it will dissipate right and i mean and i i think there is something to be said about timing i think it depends on the individual sometimes we need moments to process it sometimes we're we're not able to uh, to hold it or to stand up and admit in certain ways. We, we have to take baby steps along a certain trajectory of, you know, acceptance and, uh, and actually, um, you know, it's a process, it's a transition of becoming, becoming responsible. So, you know, maybe for somebody early on, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't reconcile it within themselves at that point and to like, you know, to, to go public or to come out or to, you know, confide in somebody would have been in fact more crushing, you know, than taking their time and getting to the process. So it's Mm -hmm. not, you know, again, it's not a black and white thing. It's another gray area of life. And so how do we all, you know, learn how to process shame in a more, in a healthier way and maybe get to the transformation and transformation or the clearing of it in a quicker way. Mm -hmm. Right. So in the interest of that, uh, you know, this question is very apropos to something that's going on in our lives right now. Um, and I think this is an opportune moment to, to talk about it in the interest of transparency, you know, which is something we talk about a lot on this podcast. Um, you know, in, in recovery, they say, uh, if you, if you, you know, when you get sober and you kind of work the steps and all of that, that, uh, you will come to a place where you will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door upon it. And I remember very early on in sobriety thinking that's impossible. Like there's no way, like I will always, you know, be ashamed of my past and and I I will always want to pretend that it didn't happen or, or, you know, try to keep it private and prevent people from knowing about it. Um, and you know, it's a very, very, like, as you said, like a long-term, like gradual process of working through all of that to get comfortable with it. And, you know, when I sat down to write Finding Ultra, I was very cognizant of that. Like I'd worked through a lot of stuff to the point where I was no longer ashamed of it and I, and I no longer desired to shut the door upon it or I didn't feel the need to. And I realized in writing that book that the, you know, the, the extent to which it would work and connect with people was directly related to my willingness to, you know, talk about those things that had happened in the past in the hope that people could emotionally connect with it, Right. Um, but something happened, uh, something, you know, happened recently, which is bringing up new layers of that for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that is this. So Julie is in the process of writing a book right now and she's, um, in the final stages of putting together a book proposal and creating, um, a chapter, you know, an excerpt of the book, like a, a sample chapter that will go into this proposal And last night she said, you know, for the first time, she's like, I want you to read it. She's been doing this quietly by herself and she's not wanted me to look at it. And for the first time last night, she said, you know, I want, I need your feedback. Finally, I'm ready for you to look at this. Will you please read it and tell me what you think? And I did. 
And uh, I thought it was amazing and wonderful. And she's, you know, really developing her voice. And there's a very distinct tone in it. And I think that um, it's going to be an amazing book. But in the course of this 35-page chapter, she told a story about me. And it was a story about something that I did uh, that I'm not proud of, that I've never spoken publicly about before. Uh, and it really, it hit me hard. Like it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I felt like somebody had sucked all the wind out of me. Um, and in the wake of that experience, it made me reflect like, why am I feeling this way about this story? And I realized that I still had a lot of shame around it. You know, it's something that, uh, my friends know about, but I've never spoken publicly about. Mm. Uh, and I realize that I'm still holding on to part of it. Like there's still a part of this story that I'm deeply ashamed about, like that I've held probably too privately. And mm. we talked about it last night and I told you how, you know, my discomfort with you relating this story in, in this chapter and you being the one to kind of be open about it before I had a chance to, uh, and we kind of worked through it and, you know, I had a restless night of sleep kind of struggling with this idea and I've been thinking about it this morning and I realized that, um, I need to take my own medicine and I need to, you know, walk the walk that I preach. And so when I read this, you know, inquiry from Mike mm. and I'm saying, you know, listen, the best way to work through this, this sense of self shame is to, is to, you know, start to confront it in a more open way. I have to do that myself, mm -hmm. right? So, <laughs> so the story goes, uh, the story relates to something that happened when we were in Hawaii for Ultraman in 2011, mm -hmm. right? It was my third Ultraman. It was an Ultraman after Epic Five and after the two Ultramans that I relate in Finding Ultra. Um, so this, is, this happened after, you know, Post the story Finding that's told, told in Finding Ultra. And I had spent an entire year preparing for this race. Uh, and I had very, very high expectations, right? I thought that I was primed to, uh, if not win the race, be on the podium. And I was so focused in my training and I showed up in Hawaii, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, 2011, beyond any level of fitness that I had ever had prior to that. Like all my numbers, my Watts, my heart rate, my running pace, everything was way beyond anything that I had ever, you know, experienced in my training, you know, even in 2009 or, or Epic five or anything like that. So I went into this race like fully charged and also with a lot of support, like in 2008 and 2009, we were like, sh you know, shoestringing this whole thing together, mm -hmm. trying to make it happen. And here we were in 2011, we actually had a lot of crew support. We had a lot of people, you know, helping us out. Like we had no excuses. Right. Um, and I definitely was feeling the pressure that comes with that, but I was also very excited to unleash my best performance yet. Mm -hmm. And I got into the water for the 6.2 mile swim and I got out of the water in first place ahead of Jonas Colting, who had won Ultraman before. And I clocked two hours and 17 minutes, which was like five minutes faster than I had in 2009. And, you know, many, many, many minutes faster than I had in 2008. Like here I was at, how old was I then? 45? I think I was 45. 45, three years. 45. 45. Yeah, so I'm 45 years old and, and, you know, getting faster and faster and faster. 217, one of the fastest recorded swims in the history of that race. Got onto the bike, 
started pedaling up the first hill and I immediately knew that like something was very wrong. Like I just couldn't get into my rhythm. My heart was racing. I just didn't, I didn't feel good. You know, Mm -hmm. I just didn't, I was like, this is not clicking. Like something is wrong. And I struggled and I struggled and I struggled to make it through that first day. And I think I finished, I don't know what place I was in at the end of the first day, like fifth or something Fifth or something, I can't remember. But I didn't win the first day like I had in 2009. Like I was having a really hard time. And that evening, uh, I started spitting up blood. And I thought, this will just pass. Maybe I overexerted myself. Showed up the next day, started the ride, and just it was not happening. And I was spitting up blood all morning long. And about, I don't know, 40 miles into that first day, something like that, I just pulled over to the side of the road. And I was like, it's, it's done. Like, I can't, I can't breathe. I'm spitting up blood. Something is wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Right? And it was devastating. Very so. And I have talked about this. I wrote a whole blog post about mm-hmm. it, you know, just, just how upsetting that whole thing was to like put so many eggs in that one basket for that one race. And that's what happens sometimes, you right. know, like the, it just doesn't go your way. Well, and the difference is that you were not a professional athlete. So it's not like you had another race behind this. It's like, this is the race that, that we had prepared for. And yeah. we had all of our resources and finally finally we had support. Finally, we were not, you know, overdrawn in our bank account. When you left, we had food on the table. We had an amazing crew. We had, you know, our friend Compton Rambada with us. Like it was, everything was in place. Mm -hmm. And here you were spitting blood and you'd, I don't know if you remember, but you had night sweats all night and you'd soak the sheets completely all during the night. And you didn't tell me. Um, and I found out later. Mm -hmm. And you know, the other thing that kind of heightened the whole thing was that, you know, I'd sacrificed a lot. Like I'd put aside a lot to focus on the training and the family had sacrificed, you know, to support me in this adventure, right? Like the whole family was behind it, but you know, everybody had to give up a little bit in order to support this dream of mine. You know, I was shouldering that as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything that, you know, had to go into like making all of this happen. So the whole thing was very emotionally heightened And I know, and you've written about this, you know, you wrote about this in in your kind of blog post recap of what happened. And then in this chapter that I read, you know, just how upsetting it was for you to say, are you kidding me? Like you're pulling over, you're pulling out of this race. Like after everything that we've gone through to get here, like get back on your bike and finish. Like, I don't care how you feel. I don't care if you're spitting up blood, like act like a professional and get it done. Well, I had that moment there. You know, I had a moment like, what am I supposed to do? Like as your wife, I wanted to say, okay, honey, you don't feel well, get off. And then then I considered my role as your crew captain and, you know, imagined myself screaming at you, like get back on your bike. So I had that moment just because it was such a, such a moment to have to throw in the towel, you know, such a moment. But of course, you know, of course you were spitting up blood you know, I snapped back into it. And of course you needed to go to the hospital. There was, Mm -hmm. you know, better that you're safe and then finish the race. Yeah. And we, and we did, we went to the hospital and, you know, I had like a, basically I had a mild respiratory infection, but there wasn't anything that serious. But when you're pushing your body to that level, like even like the slightest amount of illness in you is going to prevent you from, you know, performing at an elite level. And so I just wasn't able to make my body do the things that I knew it was capable of and that I had trained for. And it was devastating. It's extremely disappointing. Incredibly devastating. And I think in retrospect, looking back on that experience and everything that went into like that year of preparation for that race, I'd become, you know, hyper, hyper focused on, on perfecting my fitness and taking everything that I was doing to the next level. And like, this was going to be the thing, right? 
this was going to be the thing. And as a result of that, I had um, not attended to other areas of, you know, my overall well-being and health to the extent that I should have. And the biggest aspect of that was that um, I had kind of decelerated my involvement in my own sobriety and recovery, right? Like I, I never questioned that, you know, I always knew that I was an alcoholic. It was never like, I'm not an alcoholic anymore, but I started to be less strident about my meeting attendance and, you know, staying in touch with my sober friends. And, you know, I was so focused on the training that I had deprioritized that very gradually. You know, I never like quit AA or anything mm-hmm. like that or thought like, I don't need this. Like I knew that I did. I just wasn't putting it first. I right. wasn't I mean, making it a priority. Well, and for us, it was so gradual that none of us even re- realized it. Like none of us even noticed. Mm-hmm. Right. And so here we are in the wake of this sort of devastating, you know, experience. And we had rented a, like a little farmhouse up mm-hmm. in Javi where we were going to stay for a couple of weeks after the race with the whole family. And, um, and just kind of enjoy some family time as a result of this in, in the wake of this race, you know, and, and spend some time in Hawaii. And uh, a couple of days after the race, we went down, we drove down the coast a little bit to go to a beach. We had the whole family there. And I had, uh, we, we kind of parked our stuff in front of like a fancy hotel resort. And you were with the boys and the girls and playing. And like, I, I, I think I said, like, I'm going to go, I need to go to the bathroom. And I went up to the hotel to see if there was a restroom that I could use. And I noticed that there was like an outdoor bar, you know, and there's mm-hmm. a bunch of people sitting out there on a beautiful day, you know, enjoying a cocktail. And I found myself like looking at that bar and the thought occurred to me out of the blue, like, maybe I should have a beer. Like maybe, maybe a drink wouldn't be such a bad idea. It's been so long. Like, I don't know, like, you know, what's the harm? What's the foul? It was nothing more than that. And before I knew it, I had like a beer in my hand. I drank a beer. I noticed the family was down the beach and I thought I'll have another beer before they come back. And before I could blink, I think I had five beers in me. It happened so fast happened so fast and and it wasn't like this mental calculus it was almost this bizarre impulsive thing where i had forgotten everything i'd forgotten all the pain and all the hard work that it took to get sober all the suffering that i had experienced as being you know being a drunk and being a drug addict and suddenly there i was in the blink of an eye sitting on a stool in front of an outdoor beach bar in front of a hotel with a buzz on just like that, Mm. like nothing. Mm. And I remember, I think I can't remember exactly what happened, but then I think Mathis came up. Yeah. I'll I'll help you out. So, um, no, we, you wanted us to sneak into this resort pool, which was you, you were quite, gregarious and of course none of us were any wiser this hadn't hit, hadn't even thought hadn't even entered anywhere in our stratosphere but um you wanted to go into the hotel pool to go to the pool but we were already at the beach tyler didn't really want to go but you really wanted to go so we all sort of just went along because we were trying to cheer you up after you know the race dnf and all that and so we you had snuck into the pool and we got in and then um Mathis actually told me, 
I was in the jacuzzi with her and she told me and the other people in the jacuzzi that you were drinking beer. And I automatically corrected her and said, oh no, honey, daddy doesn't drink beer. And she looked at me again and she repeated it a second time. And I corrected her a second time. So then she looked at me again and she said it again. And finally the light went on and I realized what was happening. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, gathered the kids and actually Trapper wasn't even with us. It was just Tyler and the two kids. Trapper had flown back to the mainland uh, to take a test or something. And uh, so we, you know, just from my standpoint of being your partner in this experience, it was absolutely mind blowing and devastating beyond anything I've ever experienced because we had suffered and and sacrificed for so many years and finally we were getting some support and I could not understand or reconcile your choice in this moment and so from where I was I was questioning every single thing about our relationship I was angry at myself for trusting you for believing in you I could not understand how you could humanly choose this at the juncture where we were standing. Yeah. It defies all logic, you know, and that's the, you know, completely dark mystifying thing about alcoholism. Like there's no, there's no rationality that comes into play. Mm -hmm. Right. And as soon as, you know, it was clear to all of you what had occurred I mean, I copped to it. It wasn't like I tried to pretend like, and I was like, well, you this couldn't. Is, yeah. I was like, this is what happened. You know, mm-hmm. this is what happened. This is what I did. And, you know, it's a little bit foggy for me and you probably remember it a little bit more clearly, but the upshot of it was that, you know, I said, this is what I did. I don't know why I did it. Um, and I can't remember whether I broke down then or it was a little bit later, but you know, I ended up going directly to an AA meeting. Uh, Tyler took me. Mm-hmm. I, ha- I completely broke down emotionally in this AA meeting in Kona. Um, and I had to do that humiliating thing of like calling my friends in recovery back in Los Angeles and telling them what had happened, you know, and saying, please help me. Like, this is what occurred. And I called the people that I trusted the most, told them what had happened. Um, but the point is that, you know, I went right back to AA. So when I look back on it, you know, it was like the lamest relapse ever. It was a relapse of like it was three like and a, a half it was, hours. It was like a three hour <laughs> relapse. Like there was nothing, you know, like nothing, nothing, you know. It Thank wasn't God like, it, it wasn't nothing. like I right. crashed a car or, no, but or anything like that. But like, you could have. You know, I had like a five beer relapse after mm-hmm. many, many, many years of sobriety and a very long stint in rehab mm-hmm. and, a, and a zillion hours sitting in AA meetings. Mm-hmm. And immediately went back to the program and have stayed sober ever since then. Um, But it was absolutely horrific Mm -hmm. in every regard. You know, my kids had never seen me drink. Mm -hmm. uh, And suddenly they got a glimpse of of what that beast is. Um, And I think most interestingly for me, you know, just to be clear, I'm talking about this thing that happened for the first time in a public forum, but I want everyone to understand that like in, in recovery, like 
all my everybody Everyone everybody knows. yeah like in recovery everybody knows like i've mm-hmm. i've been very open about this in meetings and and you know i've shared about it from the podium and i talk about it frequently because i know that it's a cautionary tale that can be helpful for other people that have long-term sobriety that start to coast um but this is the first time that i'm talking about mm-hmm. it you know in public and uh it, it's an interesting thing you know it's made me realize that uh well it's made me realize a couple things the first thing is and i realized this immediately in the aftermath of this thing occurring was the extent to which uh, my ego was attached to this identity of somebody who had a lot of time in sobriety. The time. Right? Like, I can, go to, I can go to meetings, or I'm the guy who's been around for quite a while, who, you know, I've got the answers. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And it was very much a right-sizing of saying, no, it really is one day at a time. And just because you have all this time and you have all this experience, all that matters is what you're doing today. And that's really all that you have. So in certain respects, it's been crucial in terms of, uh, of, of right-sizing me, of really keeping my ego in check and helping me to understand uh, that it really is what's happening in the moment. And, that, um, and it's infused me with a great deal of humility about the power of alcoholism and about my knowledge and experience in this field. So I can tell you that, you know, calling up your friends in sobriety and saying, listen, you know, after, I don't know how many years I had at that point, 13 13 13 or 14, Mm -hmm. say like, I just went out, you know, I had five or six beers. I'm in an AA meeting right now, but I relapsed. Mm -hmm. That's not an easy call to make. And then to return when we got back to Los Angeles to go to, you know, the meetings that I go to and raise my hand and say, I'm a newcomer. This is what happened to me. That's like not fun. That is a, a, an, a, an assault and an attack on the ego. And it made me realize just how much I really had held on to this idea of like, you know, I'm somebody who has this figured out. I'm somebody who, you know, newcomers can come to and I can help them. And there's, like I said, like an ego attachment and an identity that gets formed around that that need to, needed to be, in order for me to, to grow, had to be decimated mm-hmm. and deconstructed so that I could, you know, create a more honest foundation about who I am and what I'm dealing with. You know, mm-hmm. alcoholism is a freaking beast, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that as a result of starting to take my recovery for granted a little bit and thinking... I don't need to go. I don't need to attend to this. Like I'm training right now and, and convincing myself that maybe I was finding answers in that as opposed to in recovery was a path that led me astray. Mm-hmm. Right. And I needed to be reminded in a very potent and powerful way that that is not the answer. Mm-hmm. Right. And I got right sized and it was devastating. Like I said, um, it was absolutely humiliating to, to kind of be reduced to this person to have Tyler have to take me to a meeting and see me in that, mm-hmm. in that state was horrible, mm-hmm. you know, and my little girls, you know, it was, it was something I wouldn't wish on anybody. Um, and when I read your account of this experience from your perspective in this chapter that you had written, it just, it hit me so hard. Like I was really upset by it. And that's what made me realize like, I still have a lot of shame about that. Like I'm holding on to it and I'm keeping it private. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'll share about it in AA meetings and I'll talk to people in the program about it because I know that it can be helpful to them. And again, I'm like very open about it in that forum. But to the extent of like being open about it in a public forum, it's terrifying to me because again, it goes back to how heightened everything was. Like mm-hmm. when this happened, it was, you know, shortly before Finding Ultra was coming out. And I thought, who am I to write this book that tells my sobriety story when this just happened to me? What do I have to offer anybody? Like, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was, and, and to this day, like, you know, to think like, especially people write in and we talk about sobriety a lot for me to not be open about this feels disingenuous to me. And it's, I've been holding on to it because I'm afraid, you know, mm-hmm. I'm afraid of what people will think and I still have some shame around it. And so when, when Mike writes this story in and says, how can I bury this or how can I overcome this? I can't give him advice unless I'm willing to do the same, right? So I have to be open about this and I have to own it. Mm -hmm. And it's very scary for me to talk about it on the podcast because people are going to form whatever opinion they're going to form about me. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll lose credibility, you know, in the conversation about sobriety because I had this slip, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think it's also, you know, very important for people out there that are listening to this, who struggle with sobriety or trying to get sober that, you know, relapse is part of sobriety that, um, you know, people are always like shocked and amazed when somebody who's sober, like goes out and uses or drinks, but that's the natural state of the alcoholic or the addict. What's amazing. And what's a miracle is when they don't do that. Mm. Right. And I needed to be reminded of that through a firsthand experience in order to right size me in order to shift my priorities and make me truly understand at my core that my first priority every day is staying sober and helping another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. That's it. Everything comes after that. Mm -hmm. You know, my connection with my higher power, my spiritual path, my spiritual life and how I navigate sobriety in myself and how I communicate it to uh, communicate about it with other people is really my first priority. Right. And so in order to serve that as best as I can, the time has come where I needed to be open and honest about this. Mm-hmm. How many podcast listeners do you think we just lost? Mm, <laughs> how about telling this? How about I don't care? <laughs> it doesn't matter. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. 
Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. It was beautifully, beautifully shared. And uh, I think it's amazing. I think, you know, you should be congratulated on having the courage and on, on, you know, taking the initiative and doing it and sharing and stepping out there. And it's only empowering for you and it's only empowering for everybody else. And so, you know, I think that, you know, you're an amazing being and you've done a lot of amazing things to help a lot of people in your life. And you're also very human and you have a lot of human qualities that are, you know, uh, maybe not as developed or still finding their way to balance. But, um, I, uh, I commend you and I respect you and I stand by you, um, in this. And, you know, I think, I would like to sort of shift and talk about, you know, how, how did we move on from this and how did we, you know, how did we as a couple then after this break and after this event happen, how did we move from there? And just to give a little backstory about, you know, how the chapter came about and how, how my writing evolved and uh, resulted in, in the chapter I gave you yesterday you know, unlike you, when I write, I don't make an outline, outline, I don't know ahead of time what I'm doing. And so it comes from a meditative place. And I simply started to write. And as I started to write and craft this first piece that I was going to share with you, um, the story emerged as part of the true authentic story of what I was dealing with at that point in the timeline. And so now I'm going to talk about what it means to be the wife of a recovering alcoholic. So I'm going to shift the focus now on me and on the fact that um, all that's very true. And that is a very painful experience for you to go through. And it is equally as painful for your wife and for your children to go through that experience mm -hmm. as well. So um, the level of disappointment that we experienced after having been at that level of pressure, financial pressure, and uh, just overall pressure um, in life for such an extended amount of years, um, when you drank that day, you had me questioning every single time that I believed in you. I just could, I could not believe that this was happening. It was completely out of my vision. I had nowhere to even put it. And I think that uh, we had all taken your sobriety for granted. You had been sober for so long that it, it was just an afterthought. Like, I, yes, you were training more and more and your numbers were better and better and you were healthier and healthier. And you were, you know, your training times were insane. You were on fire. Everything was moving in this kind of wave, you know, in the direction that we had been fighting for for so many years that 
I didn't even see it, you know, and neither did any of the kids because we just, and that's why it took Mathis literally three times of telling me literally to my face that you were drinking beer for me to even get it because Mm. that's how far it was out of my... Why would you? I mean, you had no point of reference. I met met you after I got sober Mm -hmm. and you'd never seen me in that state before. So there was no, there would be no reason for you to, you know, see this coming or expect it because you didn't have any experience with me prior to, you know, Mm -mm. me getting sober the first time. So, you know, I don't, you know, I can't, I can't judge you for that, but I can certainly empathize and and understand why you would then, you know, sort of question everything. Yeah. So it was, it was extremely hard to take at that point in the, in the timeline. And then as well, you know, I had been as a, as an individual, as an artist, as a being who needs to express herself and also experience realization in this physical world that we live in, I had taken a back seat to you so that, and that was the natural flow. It was, it was perfect for us. But at this particular time, all eyes were on you and all resources were on you. And I had coming up just weeks after your race, I finally was going to get to record my music, my album, which was the thing that had kept me alive through all of those dark years, the thing that was working for the boys and for me, the thing that we cherish more than anything. Uh, We were finally going to get to document that and record it. And so when this happened and it was, uh, you know, jeopardizing the balance, you know, for that, you know, I had some, you know, strong emotions about that and some, a lot of feelings of, you know, the unfairness of it, the unjustness of it, um, that, that I should have to bear again, like a whole nother ball of, um, of stimulus, you know, Mm -hmm. connected to this. And then what happened to go future in the timeline, this was December, 2011. Um, and actually Tyler reminded me of this recently as we were processing it together. Um, uh, we moved all of my recording engineers gear into the house. We, we arrived back in LA, we recovered, you know, enough to get back to LA and get you into meetings and, And I just want to say that I value AA so much and I respect and honor all of your friendships and all of those amazing individuals who came to help you. And without their support, I don't know that our marriage would have survived or that we would have been able to go to the next step. So I want to say that very, very uh, directly right now. Yeah. There were a group of guys that literally saved me, Mm -hmm. you know, in the wake of that and without their support and their love, like I, you know, it would have been a very different Mm -hmm. picture. Yeah. And as life would have it, um, we didn't really have a lot of time to wallow in our, all of our emotions about this event Um, because, um, just three days after we began recording my album here in, in my home, um, Lou Pyatt, the father of my boys, um, died, uh, suddenly in a kayaking accident in Malibu. Um, and he had come here to see us, um, to, he had never seen us sing. Hold on. (laughs) Okay. He had never uh, heard us play or sing together. 
And so um, he kind of arrived unannounced. And um, we set him up with some headphones, and uh, he actually listened to us do um, a few takes of a song that we were recording, actually The New Earth. And it was just extremely sweet moment. And I remember actually my my eyes going to his hands and the way that he was holding the boy's hands um, before he said goodbye. And then he said to me, Julie, it sounds amazing. I love it. And he said, will you email it to me? And I said, Lou, I'll email it to you when it's done. And he said, no, email it to me tonight. I want to play it for my girlfriend. And I said, I'll email it to you when it's done. And he giggled again and he said, email it to me tonight. I really, really want to play it for her. And then uh, I said, I want her to be really impressed, so I'm not emailing it. And he started to laugh. And he laughed really, really hard and long. And the laughter sort of hung in the air as he exited. And uh, none of us knew that that would be the last time that we would see him alive. Mm-hmm. So after... It was the following day. It I was think. two days after, two days actually, after. yeah. So... A very surreal, um, horrific, and spiritually profound experience that we had um, saying goodbye to him, and the music was a big part of that as well. But you can see that we we didn't really have the bandwidth to spend a lot of time on Rich's relapse. Suddenly, we were sort of kicked into a new reality, and you were stepping you know, up now as the full father of the boys. Um, Yeah. So what happened was, I mean, essentially in the wake of his, you know, uh, of his death was that, and I'm still, you know, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around, like, why did I relapse and what is going on and make sense of all of that and, and figure out how I'm going to move forward. Uh, Lou suddenly dies. And my relationship with the boys had always been, um, you know, parental to some extent. I mean, for the most part, they lived with us 90% of the time. You know, they would go to their dads, and, and Lou is a great guy and, a, and an amazing father to these boys. Um, but essentially, they, they were living with us the great majority of the time. But I was always very conscientious about not stepping uh, on Lou's toes. You know, I would never try to be their father. I was more like, uh, you know, the cool uncle who also had to be a parent at times, but never tried to, you know, sort of assume the role of father. And then suddenly overnight, that all changed. And so I'm grappling with, you know, the disappointment of Ultraman, um, what this relapse meant, why did it happen, and how am I going to... um, you know, start fresh and create a better foundation to move forward. And also stepping into, you know, a gigantic new responsibility with respect to uh, the life of the boys and, and, and how are they going to navigate this incredible loss? And what does that mean in terms of my relationship with them and, and how I interact with them and how I, um, you know, step in to be a full father figure literally overnight. It was, it was a lot at Mm -hmm. one moment for all of us. Yeah. And Tyler shared with me recently, he said, yeah, in the same month I saw Rich relapse and I lost my dad like within Mm -hmm. three weeks. So for him, it was a huge moment of realizing that, you know, men who we, who he thought were stable and secure in his life were, were not that. 
Um, and you know, that's okay. That's, that's a condition of life. But, but it's, when I read that in your chapter, it just, it, it just was so painful to read mm-hmm. that, you know, it was so painful to read that. And it really did make me feel like, you know, that there it is, that shame, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and I can't get to the other side of that until I shine light on it, mm-hmm. you know, and whatever that means, like by talking about it on this podcast, you know, I have to release my, my need or my desire for people to perceive me in a certain light so that I can do what I need to do to grow personally mm-hmm. and to be, you know, a better father and a better, you know, husband and all of these things. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I'm a human being and I'm fallible. And I talked about this with Mishka on the podcast last week, you know, where I was telling him, you know, I get all these amazing emails every single day. People are like, you're an inspiration, you're an inspiration. And how that, 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 that gives me, you know, as, as, as amazing as that is, and what a beautiful gift that people would take the time to write us and tell us these incredibly personal stories about their challenges and how the podcast or the books have helped them. But then to kind of end it with like, you're an inspiration. And I was expressing to him, like, I have discomfort with that. You know, I have discomfort with that because I'm not perfect because I have done these things, you know, and this relapse is a big, probably a big part of that discomfort equation for me. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do I own this mantle of, of saying, you know, I'm an inspiration for these people when I've done these things that I haven't talked about, you know, what does that, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like, like, uh, I try to relate my experiences in hopes that that will be some beacon of light that people can emotionally connect with that will infuse their journey with perhaps a little bit of additional meaning that can be helpful to them. And in order to do that, I have to talk about these kinds of things that are uncomfortable for me. Yeah, but I think that that's... um you know, that's, that gives you the ability to be in a true place of service. And, you know, we are, we've always said, we're only sharing our experience. That's what, that's what we do. Whatever we share is from our experience. We're not teaching something we read in a book or some ideology or some nutrition advice or really anything, you know, we're, Mm -hmm. we're sharing our experience in an effort to connect and help possibly in some small way, someone else who's a little bit, you know, behind us on the path coming up, you know, if by looking at our experience, we can help another couple, another family, another man, another woman, another child to have a softer landing, you know, or a little easier road, then that's very meaningful. However, do not think that we are perfect individuals do not project that we are superhuman or that we have all the answers or that, um, you know, we are better than anyone. We are no better than anyone and we are no worse than anyone. We simply are human. Um, as I would say, we're spiritual beings having a human experience and all of these human experiences are for learning. They're all for evolution and for expanding. And so, um, you know, writing this, I wrote the chapter honestly, and I knew, of course, I, I gave you editorial right over it. 
I would never have come out with it without your blessing. Um, and I even rewrote it in the middle of the night and delivered it to you without the relapse in it, chapter in it. Yeah, I haven't read that yet. And, uh, you know, I'm but still, now... I'm still processing it's, <laughs> it's all right. I mean, here's what I want to say. Uh, if somebody's listening to this and they are suffering from drug addiction or alcoholism or somebody close to them is, um, you know, I want people to understand just how uh, powerful this disease is. And if you're listening uh, as somebody who is long time sober, I can tell you from experience that it is very, very easy to get very gradually get lulled into this sense that everything is fine, right? That you can kind of coast and cruise on your experience and your laurels. But alcoholism, drug addiction, these are progressive diseases and they don't sleep. Like while you're, you know, sort of cruising, they're doing push-ups, and that's what you always hear, like in the rooms, right? They're doing push-ups, And if it manifests itself, it doesn't do it casually. It picks up as if you've been drinking the whole time and it gets dark very, very quickly. And what was amazing about that experience was that the minute it happened, all those feelings of like just terrible shame and um, insecurity and self-defeatism, low self-esteem, like all these horrible emotions that I had worked so, so hard to get to the other side of came crashing down on me like this waterfall. Like I just felt it immediately again. And it's, it was very dark and despairing, you know, and it was incredible how quickly it happened and then how difficult it was, you know, despite the fact that I was in an a meeting that night and got right back on it. And again, it, like being this super lame relapse, it was incredibly educational in reminding me about how powerful this disease is. Um, and that without vigilance, you know, it will, it will rear its head. I don't know when or how or why, but it will. And it wants me dead, you know, and if I don't stay on top of it, I'm going to end up going out again and I don't ever want to have that happen. And the only way to do it is to do it one day at a time. So if you're listening and you've, you've been sober a long time, I understand and empathize with that feeling of, of, of being, of, of it not feeling like it's, you know, uh, urgent, urgent, exactly. Um, and something that was, that was expressed to me very early on in my recovery that I think about a lot is, is this idea that there is no stasis in every given moment with every choice that you make and every thought that you entertain, you are either moving more towards recovery or you're moving towards a relapse. But the idea that you're cruising and everything's fine is a mental fallacy. Right, mm. you're either moving towards a drink or away from a drink in every moment, mm. and I have to keep that present in my mind all the time. Mm. You know, and I think that my experience of having this relapse really helped hammer home just how uh, how crucial that is. And as a result of that, like my program and my sobriety is stronger than it's ever been. But I had to be deconstructed and dismantled. And I had to be shown the beast in order to be reminded of that. Mm -hmm. And so again, it goes to this thing of like, you know, 
at the time it was absolutely devastating for you, for everybody, for me. But like most terrible things that have happened in my life, I can look back on it with some level of gratitude because it was able to push me into a different strata of respect for my sobriety and what it means, not just for me, but the impact of my behavior on the people around me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, that's the value of it for me. But again, you know, I am human. And so I'm not free of these feelings of shame. And so it's a, it's incredibly uncomfortable for me to be talking about this on the podcast. Like I'm terrified Mm -hmm. of hitting publish on this podcast tonight and sharing this with the world. And it, Mm -hmm. it, it reminds me of something James Altucher said, which is when he writes a blog post, like he doesn't hit publish unless he's Ter- less he's scared unless he's he terrified said. he's like otherwise it's not meaningful so <laughs> here i am james i'm in this position Thanks, james i'm very scared about sharing this with you guys uh and maybe that's a reason why i should share it i don't mm. know but time mm. will tell right no i think so i mean it's first of all it's a it's an integral part of your and my relationship and you know working to the next level and working as creative partners so um, I'm very, very uh, proud of you and happy for you, more happy for you that you came to this and that this is how you're receiving it. Um, I wrote that chapter just spontaneously, like I said, and I would have thrown it out if you weren't comfortable with it, as I told you last night. Um, but I think that, you know, in the in the wake of, of things like this happening, you know, how do we how did we move past it? Like, how do we, how do we move on? And I think it's by practicing um, unconditional forgiveness, unconditional forgetfulness, and about actually cultivating our skills in being in the present moment and realizing that in every moment you're born again and you're born anew. And from a spiritual standpoint, I felt sort of, Uh, sort of stale recounting this historic time that was so difficult for us because that's not the energy you and I are living in today. Like Mm. this was in 2011, you know, but in order to tell the story, which is a, you know, in a memoir, you have to tell the story. So I had to go back into that energy and revisit it, you know, and, and feel it, but it has nothing to do with how we feel now. So I felt a little bit, Uh, I felt a little remorse this morning because from a purely spiritual standpoint, it's like that's living in something that's that's not even, it's not even, doesn't even exist because we're existing in a different moment. Um, So uh, I would say, how do you get past these situations is by understanding that everybody's human, that we all have the potential to make mistakes that may not be in the highest interest of ourselves or those around us. And the second thing is to be able to forgive and release and move on and understand that it's a choice to be reborn in a new moment and to have a different experience. And so I'm not holding you. I'm not thinking of that time frame and holding you to those actions that happened in 2011. I've moved way on from that. Um, so it was in the course of writing the, you know, the, the chapter, I mean, as I trust all things, there was a reason that you and I wanted to revisit this and needed to revisit it. So mm-hmm. I trust that and I honor that. And 
Thank you for meeting me once again with so much awareness and presence and courage and a willingness to talk about the dark so that you and I can experience such an amazing, deep connection in light and in love and in service. And I'm deeply, deeply grateful for that. I appreciate that. I mean, this has been an exercise in trying to take my ego out of the equation. My ego definitely doesn't want me to talk about this publicly. My ego is attached to, you know, people perceiving me in a certain way, you know, that I can, that I have this illusion that I can control. And that's what it is. It's an illusion. So this conversation is about me releasing my ego and it's about me, uh, allowing myself to be vulnerable in a new way, which is frightening. Yeah, it's terrifying. But I can't tell people that there's power in vulnerability unless I'm willing to do it myself. So this is a new step for me in a, you know, kind of like a new level of vulnerability. And we'll see how it goes, you know. And to the extent that, you know, Mike, who, you know, provoked this question, which happened to come in and coincide with you sharing me that chapter is indicia that, you know, perhaps this is the right time to talk about this. Uh, and Mike, man, you know, your question, you know, you've tried to forget and how can you bury this? I mean, to speak specifically to that, don't try to forget it and don't try to bury it. Face it, work through it, talk about it and own it. It's through mm -hmm. owning it that you can get over the shame and you'll be able to look back on it simply as an experience that is informing your journey and perhaps giving you uh, some insight that will help you make better choices in the future. And when you can own your story with all its blemishes and all its dark darkness and pimples, um, that's when you can experience freedom. And I think that, that, you know, my choice to share this episode of my life is me trying to get to a place where I can experience more freedom um, with respect to my relationship to that event in the past. Mm. Yeah, and I think ultimately uh, what we're looking for is integration. So there is no burying of any experience. We are a sum total of all experiences, whether they're perceived light or dark or somewhere in between on the spectrum. And by allowing all of those, allowing them to exist, we can integrate and connect with something that is beyond all experience. I think that's a good place to end it. Okay. It doesn't feel right to give any postscript. I think we just need to like say goodbye and okay. end it with one of your songs. All right. Beautiful. What do you want to, what do you want to play? Um, inside city, inside city. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks you guys. See you in a couple of days. Peace. Plants. Namaste.
just a 